Welcome to Asray Pod. This week we welcome Asray Park fixture Henry Vaccaro. We talked to Henry about growing up in and around Asray Park and the many careers he's had in life, first as a builder, then the unlikely owner of the world-famous Kramer Guitar Company, how he became close friends with Bob Wooten and Johnny Cash, and restored the Berkeley Carteret Hotel. Welcome, Henry. One show note, I was late to the recording of this episode because I cannot read emails properly. As such, Amy had to leave early for a previous engagement. Henry and I were able to stay on for an additional 10 minutes to discuss Kramer and Vicaro guitars. So if you're interested, I've attached that to the end of today's episode. The matters addressed in this podcast represent my own personal views and opinions concerning issues affecting the citizens of Asbury Park in my capacity as the deputy mayor of the city of Asbury Park. They do not necessarily represent the official position of the city or the official position of the Asbury Park City Council as a whole. I am developing and implementing this podcast in an effort to keep citizens informed. However, this is not an official City of Asbury Park podcast and does not, and I repeat, does not represent the official position of the city or the governing body. Their interviews always hit the mark, so subscribe to Asbury Park. I mean, pod. Be informed, don't be in the dark. Everybody listen to Asbury Park. I mean, pod. Everything you need to know. Brought to you by Amy and Joe. If you're local, they're the pod for you. But Benny's are welcome and Shoebies too. To convention hall, Asbury Pod covers it all. Asbury Pod, I love you. I love you. Welcome, Asbury Pod listeners. Welcome back. Welcome back. We're in person today with Henry Vaccaro, really a legend in Asbury Park. In my own mind. <laughs> <laughs> and many other minds, Henry. Um, I have to say, when I first got to Asbury, was at Kingsley Deli. And your na- I didn't know who you were, obviously, at the time. But your name would come up all the time. And I was like, who is this guy, Henry Vaccaro, they all keep talking about? Um, so, Henry, I'm going to let you do just a, a minute or two introduction, and then I'm going to, you know, probably bombard you a bit with questions about, um, uh, you were born and raised in Asbury? I was. I want to hear all about it. 509 4th Avenue, Asbury Park. Above 509 4th Avenue, so. Across the street from the, uh, crane house. Oh, oh, wow. That was my father's office. So, okay, so born and raised in Asbury Park. Take us through that. Okay, uh. Grew up in Asbury Park. I went to Holy Spirit Grammar School up till the sixth grade and seventh and eighth grade. I went to military school. I went to Bordentown Military Institute in Bordentown, New Jersey. And that is for because a desire to be in the military, or were you a problematic child? No, thank God I wasn't a problematic child. <laughs> but I always uh, uh, respected the military. Okay, and my cousin John uh, was a cadet there who later not only graduated from BMI, but uh, he was in the first graduating class at the Air Force Academy. So, you know, and we, our family just has a long history with the military. My uncle, I call him uncle, really my father's first cousin, Albert Vaccaro, uh, was captured by the Japanese, and he endured the death march of Bataan. Mm. He survived that only to be killed in uh, Camp O'Donnell in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a quest. My quest is, at my age, I go to World War II battlefield sites. I've done some crazy shit. <laughs> I, I climbed Mount Sarabacha on Iwo Jima. Mm-hmm. I did a reenactment of the landings on Guadalcanal. 
I went to the Philippines and did a tour with three survivors of the Death March, one who knew Albert, and he, we found where he was captured. I found where he died, and I found a monument that had his name on it. So, Henry, take us through what, what, what we had Tommy DeSano on, who kind of talked a little bit about what it was like growing up in Asbury Park. What was it like growing up for you in Asbury Park? Oh, your in, your in, father was a basically famous doctor, right? Yeah, my father was a maverick, as far as doctors go. And what was your father's name? Sebastian P. Vaccaro, M.D. My mother was his nurse. He had office hours, seven days a week, morning, afternoon, and evening. The only thing on Sunday, he only had afternoon hours. But every day, he had morning, noon, and then he made house calls every night till the wee hours of the morning. And he took care of all the poor black patients that in the 40s and 50s nobody wanted because they couldn't pay. A lot of them couldn't pay. And they w wouldn't even uh, let him in some of the hospitals because they had no money. Mm. And my father would treat him. And uh, he made house calls. And anyway. Fast. So he was always out and about. Your father. And always. were you going? So there's four siblings, right? Yes. My, my brother Sebastian owns the hardware store in Asbury. I, have a, I had a younger sister, Roe, who passed away seven, eight years ago. And I have another sister, Frances, who lives in Florida. And so the office was in the house that you grew up in. Yes. Well, I, we grew up on 509 Fourth Avenue until 1948, and we moved to Interlaken. And okay. I basically grew up in Interlaken, but uh, our roots were always in Asbury Park. Mm -hmm. And were you? So how did these house calls work? People would call and oh. say, "I'm sick. Can you come over?" Even if it was snowing out, he'd be there. Okay. And. Many a night he would sleep at a patient's house if they were that sick and an ambulance or something couldn't come, he'd spend a whole night there. Mm -hmm. And uh, he delivered hundreds of children on the west side. And I'll never forget this in high school. I played high school football in Asbury High School. One of the guys on our team, his name was Doc Holland. His real name was Kenneth Sebastian Holland, named after my father because my father delivered him mm -hmm. and I gave wow. him the nickname Doc. Yeah. Wow. You know, we had heard something about that. I think um, was it Kay, Kay's father Kay Harris. was a doctor. The same thing. There was a whole culture of house calls and being yeah. out in the community. Okay. A, What's interesting too is in uh, 1959, all of my father's patients got together and gave him a testimonial dinner at the Berkeley Carteret Hotel. And what year is this? 1959. Okay. And he was knighted by the Pope. Pope John XXIII sent a courier from Rome to bestow this honor on my father. He was made a knight in St. George and Corinthia for humanitarian deeds. And all of my father's black patients put the dinner together, okay? Now, the dinner was at 7 o'clock at night. Well, that meant that my father could, a could have afternoon hours. So after oh. his Sunday afternoon hours, he made two house calls. He came home, put on a tuxedo, and proceeded to the dinner. I had just started a freshman year at Villanova, so... I came home for the weekend, and at the dinner, he bestowed this honor, and it, it was an award that he wore proudly around his neck, and uh, I went home to bed. He went out and made house calls till 2 in the morning, Wow! and the last person to see him alive was a, a black patient on the west side who said, here comes Jesus Christ in a tuxedo. He went home to sleep and passed away in the uh, middle of the night. He was, oh. he was young, right? Like 51 years yeah. old. That's a, I mean, the, 
Can I, is it the Order of St. George? Uh, it's quite a thing. How did the Pope even hear about your father? Well, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but you know what's crazy is the courier that came over that presented the honor to my father was still in New York, and he was contacted. He came and did the eulogy at the funeral. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah, we could talk afterwards. I mean, I have a, come from a Catholic family. I have, I have a consecrated virgin in my family. <laughs> we could talk about that story. Mm-hmm. After so afterwards. that's kind of my background, and I had went home. <laughs> I went I went home to uh, went home just early that morning. Drove back to Villanova only to receive a phone call later in the day that from my mom. She said, "You got to come home. Your dad's sick." Mm. And uh, I had a friend of mine, Jack Candiano, and I said, "Jack, could you drive?" He drove me home, and I knew the minute I pulled up that my dad was dead. All the mm. people at the house and. And did your mom keep doing nursing work or no? No, I, she just no. was she, devastated. She did some temporary work after that for my uncle Henry, just to kind of stay busy. But uh, my mom was quite a lady too, really special. Hmm. Uh, Henry, I don't want to dive into the Berkeley Carteret, but since you brought it up, we have to talk a little bit about the Berkeley Carteret and what's the right word? Should I use the word refurbish, rebuild, no. <laughs> rebuild, restored, restored? Okay. Okay. And, you know, another crazy story, you know, growing up, growing up in Asbury, it was incredible. Even when we moved to Interlake, we would walk from Interlake into Asbury, down the boardwalk, all the way over to the movie theaters as kids. And it was just an incredible life. So, 1983, the Berkeley Carteret is for sale. It had been boarded up for about five or six years. The only inhabitants were pigeons and... Uh, some watchdogs. I mean, it was stunk to high heaven. The water leaks all over the place. This is 1983. 83. And you're a developer. Well, my main business was building construction. I was not a developer. There's okay. a distinction. Mm-hmm. Sure. Building construction, we would do basically public works projects where you had to get a bond. And yeah. it was all, I did all union work. And at that point. And is that what you wanted to be as a kid? You wanted to be a, a developer yeah, or a I, builder? I always like to mess around with bulldozers and equipment. Yeah. I have to tell you, like five years ago, were you on Pat Fasano's site? Yeah. Yeah. I remember walking by and hey, seeing was, you in a bulldozer. I was like, running oh an God. excavator yesterday. <laughs> okay. So, so, okay. So you've always so had an interest in If you're Italian, in that. you got it in your blood. Okay. You, you know, you need a machine. And, and uh, my grandfather was a landscape gardener, but being off the boat from Italy, he just had a knack of creativity. And I'm just going to digress a little and sure. come forward. Okay. So I would hang around with my grandfather. And he, in the uh, early 50s, uh, you couldn't buy any pickup trucks because during the war, they stopped making pickup trucks. So my grandfather had a 1939 Chevy Coupe, and he took the trunk out of it. And he put a pickup truck body in the trunk, <laughs> sticking out, and he called it Trucagio. And that's what I remember as a kid, going with my grandfather to these different jobs in his Trucagio. Mm-hmm. Okay. He had one of his clients was a man named Willie Moretti, who lived in Deal. Okay. And he took care of the Moretti estate, which was massive. It took a whole city block, and it had ponds in it, tennis courts, and a stream, and my grandfather did all the work. And... For some reason, Mr. Moretti liked me because I would go there with my grandfather and cut grass on Saturday, and he patted me on the head and gave me some cookies. <laughs> Next thing I know, he gets blown away in a bar in Hoboken. Oh my in goodness. real life, Willie Moretti 
was the guy that got Frank Sinatra out of the band leader's contract. He gave him an offer. He oh, wow. Food. And Willie Moretti passed me on ahead and gave me Malcolm. <laughs> so anyway, with that in my bloodstream, I mean, not the milk and the cookies, but right. how my grandfather built this estate, I always like to mess around with my hands and equipment X and so forth. And you grew up looking at the Berkeley Carteret. I yes. assume seeing it during its heyday oh, and well. then seeing it during its decline. Okay. 1925, my grandfather had the landscape contract there and they couldn't pay him. And they gave him stock in lieu of debt. I have that stock. Oh, wow. And then in 19... 39 my mother and father were married there and in 1959 is when my father's testimonial dinner was at the Berkeley Carteret mm. Hotel So we had a long history with the hotel and when I saw it was up for sale at that time Like I mentioned I was doing major building construction. I mean big stuff. I built 32 schools In uh, this area all over the state uh, Five hospitals I built the original freehold hospital I did the tower building on Jersey Shore. I did South Amboy Hospital, JFK Hospital in Edison, and Riverside Hospital in Seafolk. Big stuff. Wow. Then, and I built a prison in Trenton, a $50 million prison. So that's a builder. A developer is one that puts the money together and assembles a project and then either hires a builder or builds it himself. So uh, I saw this opportunity to buy the hotel, and my brother and I bought it. For three hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, this wow. entire city block with a monstrous hotel. Okay, so when was that built? The Berkeley twenty-six. Twenty-six. Was that? And the... it was built by the Steinbach family that owned Steinbach right. Department Store, hmm. and they went under. Right. I feel that the twenties, between twenty and thirty, is when a lot of the yeah the most memorable landmarks of Asbury well, got built. Okay. The Santander's twenty-nine. Right. What year is the convention center? Okay, well, the architect that did the Berkeley also did the convention center and oh. the Sunset Pavilion and the Asbury Avenue Pavilion. Yeah. I think it was Williams or Wetmore or something right. like that. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Famous architects. Right. Yep, very famous. And they also did Grand Central Station, yes. I believe. Yeah. So they were, you know, I mean, this had a, you know, incredible... Now, so you're th well. Hold on, just so we have we can paint this picture, Henry. So you're you you've seen the Berkeley Carteret during the heyday. You've seen the decline. You and your brother are thinking we're going to buy this and bring it back to life. Is yes, that the thought? Or absolutely. Okay, the thought wasn't to tear it down or do anything no, else with it. No, they were going to tear it down. We saved it from the wrecking ball. Okay. And what happened was the city initially took it back on taxes, and then they sold it to a developer named Profita from Delaware for like hundred thousand dollars wow. and he failed to do anything and my brother and I bought it now the easy way out would have been to convert that to apartments we could have got all the financing we needed but we realized for the city and the beachfront to succeed that has to be a hotel okay now at the same time period you have mayor Kramer uh, is planning to sell the entire beachfront for two million dollars right and that's what you know, I, I know that something now in my mind is going to happen to the Asbury Park. And uh, I went to court and stopped You're thinking it. it's going to come back. Yes, it had to. Right. I mean, you know. Well, that remained to be seen well. in the 80s, Henry, <laughs> but yes. Um, okay, so so you buy the hotel, and you, let me ask you this. You, you're walking through it, and are you thinking it's in worse shape than you thought, in better shape than you thought? Well, okay, I looked at it differently. I looked at it as I bought a an entire city block of property I bought a eight-story concrete frame that had a exterior skin made out of brick 
So if I could put a new heart into that structure, I would really have something, and I would it would have been a steal for four, you know, three hundred thousand dollars. Okay. I was very fortunate. I had an incredible architect. His name was Joe DeLulo, and I'm sorry to say the poor man passed away a few years ago, and I never knew it, or I would have gone to his funeral. He was from Pennsylvania, and his firm did major school buildings. They were also the architect on the Statue of Liberty restoration, mm -hmm. the giant stadium, big, big time stuff. And the first thing when he walked in, he says, Henry, you got to get rid of all these rooms. There was 400 rooms at the time, 450 rooms at the time. Some rooms had an adjoining bathroom. Some rooms they had to help would live there. 450 rooms at the, and how many are there now? 251. Oh, wow. So what we did, he says, you should gut this entire thing. And at the same time, I had a carpenter that worked for me. A, a, his name was Bill Ryan, a really fine craftsman. I mean, and his theory was take the ruler away from the carpenter. Because if you, back in those days, you always see the carpenter undoing one of these folding rules and measuring and this and that. He said, get rid of that. Just gut the place and start out new. And that's what we did. Hmm. So from 451 rooms, we came to 250. Mm -hmm. And we had beautiful suites and... And how long did this take, Henry? Uh, probably two years. Two years. But above all, we restored the ballrooms on a second level as they were in 1926. We and got, is that how they are now? Because yes. the ballrooms are spectacular. Well, the were, okay. When I bought the building in the crystal ballroom, that's the main ballroom, half of the ceiling was on the ground. The roof leaked, and it was a beautiful plaster ceiling. There were sculptures of one was a Lady Diane and some other ones on the floor. And uh, I asked Perfita what he was going to do. He said, that's a beauty of this joint, just like that. He said, the ceiling is so high, you can drop a hung ceiling in there, nobody will ever know. I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. okay. I had two Italian plasters and Bill Ryan. They worked a year and a half just restoring plaster. Wow. They made a mold. Because back then, well, today, you see these, it looks like beautiful plaster uh crown moldings and stuff they're not plastic they're made out of plastic and they glue them on the on the building we made a mold and cast the plaster right mm. there i mean wow. like it was and that's how it was restored so uh anything about this project that you weren't prepared for yes trying to get the financing okay okay even though i was very strong financially uh i was not in a position to uh be turned away by so many banks they didn't want and what was that, the risk of Asbury Park? Yes, or? okay. The way, the quote, the Wall Street community viewed the politics in Asbury Park, the way the Wall Street and banking community viewed the fact that at that time we had 1,600 mental patients living in and along the beachfront. Nobody would touch it. Nobody. And I just think... To, I just want to inject, inject a, a quick note for people who are listening don't know what we're talking about. It's like in the wake of Asbury's decline, the state... Closed. And the closing of mental hospitals nationwide, they still had a place needed a place to put them. The state started putting them, creating halfway houses in Asbury Park and Ocean Grove. Yeah, and a large number of mentally ill residents moved in in the in the eighties. Sixteen hundred lived in Asbury alone. Yeah, and it spilled over into uh, Ocean Grove also. So it made for very weird times. <laughs> so that was another problem getting the financing. So, and. You know, what's funny, it's it's sometimes how politics plays into stuff. Uh, I was a Republican. Ray Kramer was a Democrat. But it didn't matter. Uh, we became friends, and he knew that the only way that Asbury could succeed is if this project worked. He reached out. 
unbeknownst to me, to Congressman Howard, Senator Lautenberg, mm-hmm. and, and Senator Bradley to assist me in getting financing. Mm-hmm. Okay? And there was a thing at the time called a UDAG grant, U-D-A-G. It should be in effect today. That's how good this was for the town. Basically, you could receive a grant based on merit. How is the impact going to be for the community? How many jobs are going to be created both permanently and construction-wise? And you got rated. Okay. Now, um, we were having trouble getting, like I mentioned, getting the financing, and a UDA grant would work if we got the financing in place. So basically, we we need a uh, $6 million first mortgage, and if we were able to get that, UDAG would kick in for $3.2 million. Okay, now you have to again go back into politics. Now, President Reagan becomes the president, and I've got Democrats helping me to get this UDAG. A man named Sam Pierce was the Secretary of HUD, and I'm still not getting the grant. I hired an attorney by the name of Larry Bathgate from Lakewood, very powerful. Back then, uh, here's how powerful the man was. He was a National Republican fundraising chairman, even at his own office in Washington, even though he was based in Lakewood. He said, meet me at my office Thursday morning. I meet him in his office in Lakewood. A helicopter arrives, we get in the helicopter, fly to Washington, meet with Sam Pierce, and walk out with the commitment. And what, what's the number on the commitment? $3.2 million. $3.2 million to help re, re, rebuild. Renovate the Berkeley Carter. Okay. Okay. But now, the way the deal worked, which was perfect, the grant was given to the city. So the city receives $3.2 million based on our promise to do certain things. So the city gets the money. They loan it to the developer. And when the developer pays it back, he pays it back to the city. So the city can now use the money for other projects. Okay. Okay, so there were very favorable terms. and Okay, but it was based on cash flow and a whole host of other things. So you're able to use that to, to completely yes. renovate. Mm-hmm. It's renovated and... And restored. And restored. And what is the rest of Asbury like now that this hotel is? We're the back only shining beacon in the, whole, in the town. Right. Okay, that was the problem. And uh, we started off... I had... I had great management. I had great food. I mean, I hired a top chef, and uh, on Sundays we would have a brunch that people would come all over the state to the brunch. It would be on the uh, second level of the hotel. We'd have a harpist playing, and it was not uncommon to do seven to eight hundred brunches on a Sunday. I mean, it was incredible. You know, workstations. I mean, it was so we're doing good. And then we're with the restored banquet facilities. I hired a man named Robert Freddy from New York, from the Carlisle Hotel, and we're booking everybody in there. The first full year, we did close to $4 million in food and beverage. When you say you're booking everybody, just give us a couple of highlights on that. Okay, well, Fort Monmouth was in full swing back then, so we're, we're getting conferences from Fort Monmouth, we're getting conferences from, we had a conference facility there, we're getting conferences from Prudential, and all over the place, and then every major wedding, once they saw that ball and wanted to be in Asbury at the Berkeley. So with all that food and beverage, I mean, we're starting to really get going. Now we're talking about 85, 86 when this happened. So things are starting to really look good for the hotel. And even in the fall, we, we did more than we did in the summer because, mm-hmm. you know, the beach was not in that great shape. Okay. 
then it's also it, the best time of year down here just yeah in the fall so. so the business was good we had a complete marketing team and uh, and the food was outstanding i mean we got rave reviews from all over the place and then we had a, a banquet there hosted by uh, charlotte mossbacher whose husband i think was something to do with the with the federal government I don't know. He had a title. I don't know what it was. And who does she invite to this dinner? Who spent the night in a hotel? Uh, just bear a minute. Like, this is a senior moment. Uh, mm -hmm. President Anwar Sadat of Egypt. Oh my goodness. He got murdered. His wife comes to the hotel escorted by an Egyptian general. That's the kind of caliber of people that would come to the hotel. Oh, wow. And then we did a movie in a hotel. Uh, with uh, geez, what the hell was his name? I don't know, <laughs> but they were all there, okay. okay. But so, yeah. all of these people coming to the hotel, even though the rest of Asbury still, at the very least, on the decline, that's interesting to me. That's interesting that, that it could kind of transcend that, yes, it yeah. could. Okay, now at the same time, uh I'm just jumping back a minute, is uh, we had the point where Mayor Kramer wanted to sell the whole beachfront for $2 million. I went to court and stopped him and, you know, a whole bunch of other things. I got a restraining order. And he approached me. He says, I want to get this thing going. And uh, I said, I think the only way you can get it going is you've got to set up some kind of redevelopment authority. You just can't sell the beachfront with nothing else going on around it. And he took my advice. He says, can you recommend a good lawyer? And at the time, my attorney was Alan Davis from the Wilentz, Goldman, and Spitzer law firm. Mm -hmm. I reached out to Alan, and uh, he had a, an associate named Stanley Ben, and they came and met with the mayor, and uh, the mayor, sure enough, engaged their firm, Wilentz, Goldman, and Spitzer, pristine law firm in the state. And they recommended to set up— And this up, is, again, mid-'80s? This is This is about 84. 84. And they set up—well, they went to—they said, you really got to set up a redevelopment authority. But when we checked the statute, uh, you already have one. You, you named the housing authority as your redevelopment authority, and a city of your size can only have one. So they had to draw up a contract with the housing authority to allow them to develop east of Grand Avenue with a, a redevelopment, and a housing authority would control west of Grand Avenue. So that's kind of how that works. Mm -hmm. So what they did, they set up a waterfront redevelopment advisory board and Ray Kramer really liked it he said this way we keep politics out of the redevelopment now here's who's on the board the chairman at the time was Jim Riffesey VP of Amarada Hess hmm. Jules Plangiers editor of the Asbury Park hmm. Press James Dolan the president of the gas company Frank Anfuso VP of Midlantic Bank Peter Beal VP of National Community Bank and then there was James Hunt, a local funeral director. Real quality people who had, the only objective was to see that the city got developed. Hmm. So after the board was put together, they were commissioned to hire a planner and they engaged the services. They initially wanted the Rouse Company, who had developed, uh, I think, South Street Seaport in New York, mm -hmm. and big time. But Rouse couldn't deliver in a time frame that the uh, agency wanted it. So they hired a firm out of Pennsylvania uh, called Norman Day Associates, and he submitted a new master plan. They had hearings. They must have had hearings, 20 hearings, 
some four to five to six hours long. Because of the public. Yes, and the public had input, and the original plan was perfect. I mean, nothing perfect, but I mean, right. in my view, compared to the way it ended up, because it was designed to help the citizens of Asbury Park, not some Wall Street firm. Right. Okay. Back then, the master plan was developed into about 10 subsections. Each subsection had a designation, A, B, C, D, and so forth. And in each subsection, they had smaller sections. And if you own property in a subsection, you could develop your own property as okay. long as you developed it in accordance with what the new plan called for. So this if, was similar to the lot by lot, block by block stuff that that was coming to fruition when I was yep. when I first got elected. So okay. if you owned a, a, a give you a prime example like Pat Fisano, if he owned the Powhatan Hotel at the time, and a hotel and a hotel or apartment was slated for that block, if he teamed up with the neighbor next door and they put their property together, they could develop it. The master developer had nothing to do with it because it would only enrich the master developer because you got local people also developing at the same time. Okay. Then it ends up being problematic later. I mean, I don't know. I can't say if it was good or bad overall, but you know, when you have a, you have this small developer without the blessing of the master developer, without buy-in from the, uh, you didn't have the, to do the that next. then. Oh, only when so by the time I come across yes, block, you by got, block, block by block, it's it's you, different. You got the worst of it. Okay. Uh -huh. The original plan was it also required that that they hire local people, that local businesses got first preference. I mean, it was designed to help the city. Okay. So a lot of things now started to happen. So now, as I mentioned to you, I was a building contractor, not a developer. So I wanted to bid on this project. The so, waterfront project. Yes, because I know it's coming. At the time, we now own the Berkeley, and we see this whole... So at the time, my brother and I went, and we bought 21 parcels of property. We had a piece of property in every subsection. So whoever comes in has to talk to me, okay? Whether I now join with them or sell them my property, at least I get an, a shot at doing a building. That's my main goal, is building, okay? So we bought the Palace Amusements, we bought three motels and refurbished the hotels, uh, we bought a bar, you know, uh, vacant lots all over, and then we bought the Monterey lot, which was the vacant lot behind the Berkeley Carteret Hotel, and then I approached the city about vacating the street, which they did, so that we have a decent parcel to make everything work, okay. The master plan, some people liked it, some people didn't like it. But what they planned to do was to vacate Ocean Avenue, hmm. close it, make it a pedestrian mall, and then Kingsley Street would be the new Ocean Avenue, much like Atlantic hmm. City, right? The main drag is a block away from the ocean. Hmm. So this allowed you to have bigger blocks to build on. So now I'm looking for a partner. And this is still mid 80s, right? Yes, 84. this is uh, 84, 83, 84. 84. Yeah. 84. Because I think the development contract eventually got signed in 85. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm looking for a part. I can't find anybody, okay? And why? People well, are just people not interested. People were afraid in... of Asbury Park. Okay. Yep. They were, really. I mean, it was always a, a 
tainted thing of corruption in the city. There was always, uh, and then they had the mental patients and the blight and <sighs> crazy. Hmm. We've talked about that in the show. Like when I first moved down here about 15 years ago, nobody wanted to come visit no. me. They want to, and after you know, when you realize how wonderful it is, I was like, fine, don't come. It's nice, right. you know. But it, it was it's it, that lasted for so long. So that's, you're talking eighty three, eighty four. People still remember the riots. Yeah. Right. Okay, so you got that on. Okay, so now I'm looking for a partner. Now I've got the Berkeley in place, and um, I get Johnny Cash as my first investor, and then um, I get a phone. And you call. had already known Johnny Cash by yeah. that point. Okay. I had well, I was a major investor in Kramer Guitar Company. Okay. I don't know a thing about guitars. I don't play the guitar. I play the stereo. I listen <laughs> to Johnny Cash music. So, and if you're Italian, you love Frank Sinatra, but I love country music. I don't yeah. know why. Okay. You know, June Carter Cash was also a really, really prolific um, singer-songwriter, in my opinion. And yeah. She does it. June Carter Cash was oh, also yeah. a really fantastic singer-songwriter. Incredible lady. Yeah, but doesn't n never gets any play. No. But she, you know, I have to say, probably more on my Spotify is June Carter Cash than Johnny Cash. Mm. She's a but incredible man. So yeah. now I'm building a hospital. I, I started. I invested in a guitar company yeah. in 1976. And um, and what made you do that? I the fit of madness. I had an industrial park. <laughs> And like I mentioned to you, I was a builder, which meant I was always building for somebody else. So I bought a piece of land and I started building for myself. And my goal each year is to build a building and lease it out. So by 1976, I had six buildings and I had a vacancy and somebody came to rent space. They want to start a guitar company. Okay. And uh, his name was Dennis Berardi. And I said, well, what's so unusual about your guitar? He said, we, he said we're going to revolutionize the guitar world. I said, what do you mean? He shows me this aluminum that guitar. I said, it's nice. I mean, I don't know a damn thing about right, it. Right, right. And I says, can I borrow it? So I take it home, and I give it to Bill Ryan, who was my superintendent, whose son was Billy Ryan, probably the hottest guitar player on the shore. He just passed away, Billy Ryan. He played with everybody. In the upstage, he played with Springsteen and Norman Selden, everybody. Mm -hmm. right? He says, Henry, this thing got this great sound. He says, it's kind of heavy, and but if you could clean it up, he says, I think you got something. So I made a deal. That I would invest in a company. And what were guitars? So I know nothing about guitars. What were they made of previously? They were made of wood. Yeah. And th these guitars were made of what? Well, the neck was made out of aluminum. Okay. And it made and it, it lighter. in wood. No, it didn't make it lighter because at that time the aluminum was a forging, which is what they make aircraft landing gear out Very strong aluminum. I mean, but it was heavy. Okay. Because the headstock, which is at the end of the guitar, was about almost three quarters of an inch thick so it was very heavy and the entire length of the neck was heavy aluminum but, but you got this what they call sustain but the it, it resonated the aluminum yes. resonated better than the wood yes because wood goes dead and just like the harp on a piano it keeps ringing okay and, and amy for non-guitar people this is a big deal travis bean in california yes. had built a couple aluminum guitars that jerry garcia was playing in the late 70s so his his he, so that idea sort of filtered through the Kramer guitars, yes, but yeah. the problem was back then, the aluminum guitar, the whole back was aluminum. On yeah. Travis Beam, so you felt that cold aluminum on your hand. Right. Okay. So the Kramer was a slight modification of that, where we added wood inserts, so you felt more of the wood, even though you did feel part of the aluminum. Yeah. So th that was that. So now, uh, 
like I mentioned to you, I invested in a guitar company, and uh, I'm building a hospital in Sea Caucus, and Johnny Cash is going to perform the next spring at the Garden State Arts Center. Okay. Oh, the Garden State Arts Center existed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How long has that been around? 60s? 70s. I don't know. I, I, early 70s. I started going to see there. I saw high school, in high school. So like, it had to be the 70s, late but 60s. But back then at the art center, the performer would come and spend the whole week there. They'd have a whole series, Monday through Friday. The residency. The performer would be yeah. there. Oh, wow. Nice. So that, that's why I played into my benefits. So now I'm in Sea Caucus, and I just read Johnny Cash's autobiography called The Man in Black. And I'm reading it, and I see where a Dr. Nat Winston along with June Carter, got him off his pill habit. So I'm in Sea Caucus at Dr. Cavelli's office, who uh, was the owner of the hospital. It was a private hospital. And he said, ah, he says, a damn bank is making us hire a management company. They don't trust doctors to run a hospital. He says, we're going to hire this company from Nashville. And he shows me a brochure. In the brochure is a picture of Dr. Nat Winston, who I immediately connected. So I call Cavelli. I says, Get a hold of Dr. Winston, see if he can get me to meet Johnny Cash after the show at the Art Center. <laughs> so the next spring, sure enough, I get to meet Johnny Cash. Okay. Now I introduce myself not as a contractor, but as being in the guitar business, as I wanted to have something in common. So for the first three years, good for you. Henry. They thought well I was done. in the guitar business. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it's it's kind of funny because June Carter when we did the grand opening of the Berkeley that Johnny Cash did a concert at the Paramount and I have all this on video she goes on stage and she says when I first met Henry <laughs> she says, I pictured him as wadded up in his little old garage making them guitars yeah. that he used to bring to Bob she says I didn't think he had enough money to get a ticket so I said let him in let him in <laughs> he's then I found out he owned the whole company that that video is on YouTube I watched it yesterday yeah. it's a great it's a great uh introduction to you actually introduction so, to June Carter. okay so oh, now i meet johnny cash afterwards and i tell him about this new guitar well that sounds interesting henry he said uh, we're staying over at the hilton inn at exit 105 in eatontown he said, why don't you come by tomorrow morning i'll introduce you to bob wooten my guitar player and marshall grant my bass player this is why i know there's a god up there okay <laughs> so i show up at 11 o'clock i think it was and Marshall is waiting for some other guitar company that had made an appointment through the House of Cash in Nashville, which is Johnny's office. This guy doesn't show up. They think I'm the guy, and he let me right in. Yeah. Okay. I convinced them within an hour. I showed them the guitar, put them in my car, drove to the Kramer factory in Neptune. That night, the entire Johnny Cash band played aluminum neck Kramer guitars on stage, and the rest is history. Oh, wow. That's awesome. There's a picture of that, too. So, um... Of, of the whole band playing those early Kramers, which yeah. are a very interesting design of yeah. that, too. You know. And then I became best friends with Bob Wooten, God rest his soul. And then we eventually made a, a, a regular uh, uh, woodneck Kramer for him that he played the rest of his life. He loved it. And did you get into guitars, or you no. still really don't care much <laughs> no, about guitars? I, I, <laughs> you don't have to be a guitar player to know what it takes to make the thing work. Okay? Right. I mean, I... I don't even have an engineer. Are background. you musically inclined? No, not at all. It's, I'm stereo. Guitar. Uh, you know, I sing in a shower. Yeah, guitar makers and players are different. Like you know, I follow a bunch of guitar makers on Instagram. They're not. I, they, they never play their own. The things they make, they're they have a different sense. They're thinking about sound, and how things are. They're okay, completely just, different. Just to give you a crazy idea, okay, in construction terms, 
this piece of aluminum Henry's picking is a piece called of a double T. Okay. Okay. A double T gives you more strength than a single T. If you ever look at a at a at the inside of a building, and I came on this design while I'm sitting in Langusta Lounge. I'm looking up at the precast on the second floor, and there's all these double T's. Same thing in uh, structure. When you see a metal deck, it's always got the corrugations in it because if it was just flat, it would collapse. The corrugations give it the strength. Huh. So that's how I came up with this as opposed to the single T that Kramer had, which was very heavy. Yeah. So anyway. So, meet Johnny. so the double T made it less heavy. Yes. And you mm. could completely encapsulate it in wood. Hmm. The wood could completely cover it. Where the single T, you had wood on both sides and you felt that cold aluminum. So the okay. the original the original versions were of the Bean guitars were like playing a metal guitar, which didn't feel great. It yeah. sounded great, but didn't feel great. Now this gives you the best of everything, right? And the, part of the reason aluminum is interesting because the woods used for nice guitars are becoming rarer and rarer. It's hard to get like the rose woods and, and the ebony. You can't. Yeah, you can't get anymore. So aluminum is is solving a problem, you know. Yeah. But then Johnny Cash. So you bring Johnny Cash to Asbury Park? Yes. Because you know, when I was a kid and I had heard about Johnny Cash investing in the uh, when I first you know I was I was a kid when this ha when these things happened, it, it, my brain couldn't connect the two. It's like how in the world did Johnny Cash even get to Asbury Park? How does he even know where it is? You know, you know, and it wasn't until I was in, until recently, like this last year, that, that I realized you were the nexus because you know it just seemed crazy to me. It's like how did Johnny Cash even know where Asbury okay, Park so, was? You know? So what happened is so I bet I become very good friends with Bob Wooten first. Okay. More so than Johnny Cash. And you're working on these guitar designs. Yeah, well they're so playing the guitars and, and it was really a sideline for me. I eventually was a chairman of the board of the company. We did eighteen million dollars in sales. I mean this is this Amy like, and your Kramer Guitars was the number one selling guitar in the in the world yes. at one point. Because Eddie in Van Halen world. picked it up like like when I was a kid, I wanted a Kramer guitar. Like it was huge. Hmm. <laughs> we were voted by Guitar Player Magazine and the, as the number one selling guitar, over five hundred in price and under five hundred in price, hmm. beating Fender and Gibson. And at one time, I almost bought Gibson. Wow! But I wasn't into the music, and I was okay. So now I become friends with Bob, and I take him on a fishing trip to Bimini. And boy, did we have a great time. He hooked a giant tune over nine or 900 pounds and <laughs> broke the line and all that. And he's, oh my God, he says, Henry, why don't you ask Johnny to come? Well, in many ways, I'm shy. I says, I, I, I can't do that. So evidently, Because he Bob, was such an icon to you. Yes. You were, you were so shy about it. Now, um, I used to travel on their tour bus because people say, well, how do you really get friendly with him? I said, through his stomach. What do you mean? I said, I used to bring him Italian food that you couldn't get in Tennessee that he loved from Piancones and Bradley Beach. <laughs> so I'd bring brugettini, gavagol, brugette, and put it in a cool, and they'd Which all eat it. It still exists today, right? In Bradley Beach. Pardon? It still exists today no, in Bradley Beach. No, no, no Piancones isn't there anymore. Oh, it isn't there anymore. No, um, so anyway, that's how I got to be friendly ones. So I'm on the tour bus. I forget where we're going, and Johnny Cash said, well, Henry, come back here a minute. He said, Bob is telling me about your fishing trip to Bimini. He says, you know, I'd really like to go. Wow. He said, checks his calories. He says, I can go next June. Like, Perfect. So I take him to Bimini, and we had the time of our lives. I mean, two guys, uh, I mean, like Chris Christopherson said to me one time, <laughs> you know, he says, it's a story made in heaven. A fan is, becomes the best friend with the number one yeah. country music singer star ever. And, and we were just incredible 
close friends. I, mean, I was at Paul Berger's funeral. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, so then he invites me to a movie set called Murder in Kaida County in Griffin, Georgia, where Johnny Cash is playing a sheriff and uh, Andy Griffith is playing this land baron. <laughs> and I spent a week down there on the movie set. Well, with me, I brought photos of, I don't know why I did, but I did of the, I just, we owned a hotel. Uh, I had brought photos of Convention Center, the Paramount Theater, and the whole beachfront. And um, what they did is they used their tour bus as as the dressing room. That way they pull it right up to the site in the swamp or whatever. And so mm -hmm. now Johnny is out shooting a set, and I'm in the bus with June. And she's, well, Henry, come on up here and tell me about where you're from and all your family. And I'm telling her this story about Asbury Park, and I'm showing her photos. I remember my mama telling me about Asbury Park. She said, that's beautiful. Then Johnny gets on the bus, and she says, why, John, look what Henry's wanting to buy. And he said, what's that? And I'm showing him the hotel and all this stuff. He said, wow. And what year is this? This is uh, 84, okay. late 84, I think, early, in, in, in that time frame. So uh, he said, tell me more about it, and I told him, and... Uh, he says, uh, if you get that convention center, he says, I want to open it up for you. And he says, it won't cost you a dime. I says, I can't accept that. He says, what do you mean? I said, Johnny, I'm not your friend to take from you. I says, I want to pay you like everybody else pays you. But if you want to take that money and invest it in a hotel, maybe <laughs> we can do something. Well, let me think about it. Unbeknownst to me, not the next day, the day after that, we're on a movie set. And he introduces me to his accountant, who, a guy by the name of Gary Baker, who drove all the way down from Nashville to meet me. And he says to Gary, he says, uh, uh, you think you can make time to go to Asbury Park to look at this project for me? And Gary says, of course. So next thing I know, he approves the deal, and Johnny and June became our first investor in the hotel. Wow. So now that I got them, I'm telling George Michaels, who owned Michael's restaurant on the beachfront and very well respected man in town. He says, can you come to lunch next week? He says, I want you to meet Ernie Anastas. So we go <laughs> over to, we had lunch at the Oak Golf Club and I get to meet Ernie Anastas, who's the anchor man on then the Channel 7 News and I'm telling him and Ernie becomes my next investor. Wow. So as a result of that, Ernie is now trying to help me. Oh, at the meeting was a man, uh, I forget his name now, uh, of Dick Levy who was a vice president of Cushman and Wakefield, a giant real estate firm in New York. And they even reached out to try and they, we had Disney come to Asbury, but the project was way too small for them. So next thing I know, uh, Dick Levy says, I've got a, a meeting with Donald Trump. So I go to New York and we meet Donald Trump in his office on his 66th floor or whatever. He's very nice, very cordial. He just says, hey, I got too much on my plate in New York. This doesn't fit what I'm trying to do. And, and that was that, but uh, mm -hmm. that was just a meeting that we had, and they tried to hook me up. So the next thing I know is uh, Cushman and Wayfield says, we think we got a partner for, for you out of Connecticut. So the guy's name is Joe Carabetta. Huh. I never heard of him. So they arrange a meeting in my office, Carabetta comes in. I'll never forget this, so unassuming. He had on a pair of jeans, just a t-shirt and a navy pea jacket. Must have been World War II surplus pea jacket. <laughs> and uh, we start talking, and he sits down in my office, and I had this 700-pound mounted fish, 
he, he loves to go fishing. And I had a bus at Johnny Cash, and he's a big country music fan. And he reminded me of my grandfather, and we hit it off. Yeah. So that was an outgrowth of what started to be a partnership. And at the time, Carabetta owned 22,000 apartment units in Boston area, Connecticut, and through rear Massachusetts. And he seemed like the perfect fit. Hmm. So we formed a joint venture. My brother and I would own a third. Carabetta would own two thirds. Hmm. Carabetta would put the funding up. We then were required to sell, uh, sell <laughs> to the partnership all of our real estate in the redevelopment zone except the Berkeley. So we had a whole list of And uh, also, my company had the right to construct. That was the main thing, as long as I met the budget established by the general partner. Okay. All on paper, it seemed perfect. Now, we're going to get paid for our real estate at the quote, then fair market value which was to be determined by an appraiser. So in other words, if we own a piece of property and the block is now going to be developed and you have approvals, the appraiser says, well, the Vaccaro piece is now worth 150000 mm -hmm. based on a number of units. Okay. So everything on paper was perfect. Well, it all fell apart. Okay. It fell apart for a couple of reasons. One was now we're about 1988. Things are starting to develop, and uh, Carabetta got the approval from the Bank of Boston, $50 million commitment to build a C-8 high-rise. And as I mentioned, every area was designated with a numeral and a, uh, you know, and a, a designation. The coordination. coordination. Yeah, C-8 happened to be the C section, and 8 was the block number. Carabetta assembled the block, and this is when the problem started. 25% of the block was owned by my brother and myself. So now we follow the contract, we hire an appraiser. The appraiser says it's worth $250,000. Carabetta gets an appraiser, says it's worth one hundred and fifty. <laughs> now we paid two hundred dollars for it, right? Yeah. So now we're bucking heads. But I didn't know at the time it was a stalling tactic because he, his whole crew was busy in Revere, Massachusetts, and they're not ready to build in Asbury Park. I never knew that at the time. So... They were bucking heads. So now he goes to the Waterfront Redevelopment Board. They want to know how come he's not building. Carabetta is not ready to build. So he needed an excuse. So he used my brother and myself claiming that we're greedy. Well, that's all that Nancy Shields had to hear. She was a reporter for the press. And she started putting these articles out that the cows are greedy. And that really turned a lot of people against me. Yeah. Okay. Well. We weren't greedy. We just wanted what the contract called for. Yeah, yeah. So, make a long story short, uh, I had a great attorney named uh, Richard McCumber at the time, and he says, Henry, let's put this guy on the spot. So we go to the next meeting with the waterfront board, and we said, Mr. Carabetta, here's the deed to the property. Pay us when a third appraiser says what it's worth, because he tried to say, well, if I get a third appraiser, it's going to stall, we're going to end up in litigation. So McCumber said, here, take the deed, start building, pay us when a third guy says what it's worth, but the interest starts today. So anyway, so he, we finally settled and we got paid. Meanwhile, there's a little animosity going on. So the next thing is we get a, we get a um, loan commitment from the Bank of Boston for $50 million to start the C8 building, okay? The only problem was I want to build it, 
because my co the contract says Henry Vicaro Corporation has a right to do all the construction as long as it meets the budget right, established right. by the managing partner. Sure, sure. The problem was I didn't know Carabetta was a non-union contractor. Oh. I'm a union contractor. No mm. way could I meet his budget. So he starts building and he started to pick at the job. Anyway. And when you say he starts building, where is he starting to build? The C8 high rod. He is, okay. And what he did was he'd bring his own crew down the unions picketed. They had, they stopped every job in the state one day and bust in two thousand pickets, hmm. and they were picketed the job continuously. He couldn't get steel, so he had the steel dropped off in Pennsylvania. He trucked it in with his own trucks. He couldn't get concrete. He got somebody way down in Tuckerton to bring him concrete, a yeah. non-union guy. Couldn't get a crane. He bought his own crane, and uh, he made the precast in his own factory. That um, that C eight parcel we're talking about that that became the the, the frame, skeleton. the skeleton that was just, uh, if those of you familiar with Asbury, it was the steel skeleton that was there for 20 or so years. Yep. Okay. Right on the waterfront. But people don't know what really happened. That's yeah. what they have to know. Yeah. Okay. The Bank of Boston gave us a $50 million commitment. Carabetta constructed the sales center, which was magnificent. I give them total credit. It was magnificent. Every unit was sold out with two and three backups. Every unit. Wow. Now we hit 1989 nationwide savings and loan crisis. 1,400 banks failed. Five banks that we're doing business with failed. Tom's River Bank, Riverside Savings, Central Jersey gets sold out, uh, Marine Midland, and the Bank of Boston pulls the plug on Carabetta after advancing $18 million and won't give them any more money. Wow. So that stopped everything. Now, just prior to that, and how much of C eight is built at that point? Just the skeleton that we see. Sixteen stories of steel, okay, concrete, and and precast skin, okay, including a parking garage. Took the whole block. Okay, that's nineteen eighty nine going into nineteen ninety. Nineteen eighty eight, everything is going little shaky at the hotel, mm -hmm. but somebody opens up the sewer plant, and millions of gallons of raw sewage wash up on the beach. The 4th of July weekend. Oh my that God. was a death blow right. for the hotel. When you say things are shaky at the hotel, what do you well, mean? Well, I mean, it's because not doing as well as it had been. The first two years were doing excellent. Right. 86 and 87, but now with nothing else going on in town. The, you allure, know, the allure had faded a little bit. Yes, mm -hmm. and, and you're not getting it this summer. That should have been full in the summer, but people aren't coming because the beachfront is in disrepair. Boardwalk's falling apart. The, the, I mean, then. All the trade shows left the convention center, and the hotel's lifeblood was the trade shows. Right. You've got rooms, food and beverage, and everything else. With them gone, the hotel starts to go under, and then you get the death blow of the sewer plant. Yeah. So now we're into 1989, and the savings and loan crisis stopped funding the building. Carabetta bought out my brother and myself, bought all our real estate out, and he bought our partnership shares. I think the number was $7 million. We're supposed to get seven mil, a million a year for seven years. Never got a penny. He yeah. went bankrupt. The notes are worthless. Hmm. And then when does Fishman come in? Okay. What happened was in after Carabetta went bankrupt. This is the late 80s. Yes. Okay. Late mm -hmm. 80s. And I want to say around, I kind of lose track of the time a little bit, say mm -hmm. around 1990, the city sues Carabetta to hold them in default of the contract. 
which they, they that's what they had to do even though he so he files a bankruptcy and then they make a settlement agreement the settlement agreement gave Carabetta until October 15th 1991 I could be off a year buddy to, oh, to no come problem. up with hundred and thirty million dollars in financing if he did he goes forward if he didn't he has to give back the redevelopment rights to the city and the convention center and the Paramount Theater, all which he had a lease on. Got to give it back and walk away. Those documents were signed and held in escrow by an attorney named Charles Giuliano from Long Branch with the Chamlin Law Firm. He's the escrow. He holds it in trust. So if Carabetta comes up with the money, it comes out of trust and goes to him. If he mm. doesn't come up with the money, it comes out of trust and goes to the city, Carabetta's gone. Yeah. Now, they sign that agreement on the last day of June of 91. July of 91, we have a brand new city council. I don't want to mention any names. <laughs> I don't know who they are, so don't worry. <laughs> uh, but I get a phone call three weeks into June, uh, three weeks into July from Joe Carabetta. He says, Henry, he says, I'm working on getting the financing. He says, his, his very words, can you get me a meet, a meet mm -hmm. with the new council? Because I know you know them. Mm -hmm. He says, I might need a little time, but can you get, arrange a meet? I arrange a meeting. At the meeting is Dennis Buckley and another councilman, Sam Adio, Ray Chabelle, the city attorney, and he just moved out to Highway 35, so I can quantify the year Chabelle mm -hmm. moved out there. And at the meeting, Carabetta comes in, he brings in from Florida his planner, and he brings two guys from Toronto, Canada. This is how the meeting started. The guy from Toronto says, let's cut through the chase. It's impossible for Carabetta to get financing. He's in a bankruptcy, and the way the banking community mm -hmm. and the Wall Street crowd views Asbury Park, nobody will give him any money. But we will. You know, me and my partner have at our command, $150 million in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. We have a hard money lender who will loan us $130 million against our collateral. The lender doesn't care where the project is. He knows that if we don't pay him back, he's going to be made whole plus some. Yeah. He says, we're going to lend the money to Carabetta. We're going to become his partner, and you, the city, get what you want. Everybody walks away kind of ecstatic. Sam Adio says, that's great. Chevelle mm -hmm. Grimmie says, Henry, this is the best thing in the world for this new council. Right. Okay. Carabetta doesn't come up with the money. October, now, in the meantime, the new council, the first thing they did is they fired the Waterfront Redevelopment Board and appointed themselves. Mm. The second thing, fired Willens Goldman and Spitzer and put in a redevelopment attorney, a friend of one of the councilmen, with no redevelopment experience, none, mm -hmm. zero. They run up to run up to Connecticut, the bankruptcy court, want the project back. Carabetta files suit against the city and accuses the one councilman of tortious interference mm. because that council person called up the lender in in Toronto and said, "quote Don't give Carabetta any money. We're going to throw him out of town. Give us the money so we can develop the beachfront the way we want." Oh my goodness! And as a result of that, Carabetta wins the suit. And gets the development rights back, and they stayed that way until 2002. Oh, and that's when Larry Fishman gets involved. Yes, right. But nothing happens in the meantime. Like that's the that's the long period of nothing. And that's right? Tom. And part of that is Tommy's 
argument on the reason the waterfront yeah. doesn't develop because of those years of litigation. Okay, yeah. so now I meet Glenn Fishman. He bought a piece of property from my brother, and he was going to finance something that I had. And uh, I said, "Would you? oh?" And he wanted to buy the tax liens. He was with a company called MD Sass in New York that buys tax liens all over the country. He said, "We want to buy the tax liens, but the, the bankruptcy court won't sell them to us because if we own the liens, we could foreclose, and they don't want that to happen." Hmm. I said, "Are you interested in buying Carabet out?" He said, "Absolutely." I arranged a meeting. Hmm. In one day, Carabetta comes down from Connecticut. Fishman comes. We meet in. Uh, Shrewsbury at his lawyer's office, and within an hour, the deal is struck, hmm. and that's how it came to be. And then for many years, Fishman doesn't do anything. <laughs> so. The story continues. Listen, I have to bring my son to a play date, so we have to wrap up. Do you have, um, I feel like you had music questions. You well, what, what I was thinking, that. maybe we do, we can wrap up, and could I sit here for a few minutes more? Sure. Talk, and we could do yeah. like a, an addendum to the, to. yeah. All right, so we'll, we'll, okay. we'll pause here. I Let will take Amy Jensen go- out the front. And then we'll restart. And I want to ask you about the yep, Caro sure. guitars. Okay. So um, this is our addendum to today's uh, conversation with Henry Picaro. And we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about... We had mentioned Kramer's guitars in the in the first episode, or the first part of this. But, you know, um, Henry, you're still working on guitars. You brought some models today. You know, you're still working on the aluminum yep. neck. Um, can I ask why? Why are you still worried about that? <laughs> I got a taste of, of it, you know, yeah. and uh, it was good times. Yeah. And um, back then, Kramer, in its heyday, we had the aluminum neck. Yeah. Which was a takeoff on a Travis Bean. Travis Bean was the first, really, aluminum neck guitar, which was made out of a solid block of aluminum and then milled down, which meant the entire back of the neck was this right. cold aluminum on your hands. Mm-hmm. We modified that at Kramer by having a forging made. And then we would put wood inserts so you would feel more of the wood than you mm-hmm. did the aluminum, but it was still heavy because it was a forging. And the pluses were it would never break, it wouldn't warp, and you got this great sustaining ability. And the sustain is important because Kramer became the guitar for 1980s heavy metal. I mean, yep. you know, you can name from Eddie Van Halen to, um, you know, Ozzy Osbourne, Ozzy, Twisted Sister, you know, Twisted Queen's Sister, Reich, you know, Queen's Reich. And I remember, um, you know, it was Kramer Guitars. What was the other one? Charvel? Charvel? Yeah, Charvel. Yeah, Charvel. But, um, you know, so the sustain played a part in forming the sound because it changed the way they played. And, um, but I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt that. Uh, okay. Good. So now the positives were the things that I mentioned, but the negatives were it was neck heavy. Yeah. And, Sometimes it will go out of tune when the stage lights would hit it and make the aluminum expand. That's a little thing. Oh, I didn't even think of that. The okay. heat changed the heat. Hmm. Okay, so now I said if I could keep the positive, yeah, get rid of the negatives, I'd really have something. Well, I now have done that, and I can announce it today because yeah. I just got my patent last Thursday. Oh, fantastic! So after Kramer's, uh, you know, after Kramer was per- bought out, right? I yeah, think. what happened? Yeah, it's another story. <laughs> well, Real quick. Yeah, yeah. I own Kramer, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, my part, I bought everybody out. I sell it to the Jackson family. Right. And they defaulted on me, and yeah. I got wiped out. So then it was an auction. They sold everything off, and 
Gibson eventually bought the Kramer name, and now they're coming back with the Kramer product. Yeah, they're supposed to be releasing limited Kramer. And I was reading last night, used Kramers are very valuable on eBay. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Even used for carols are valuable. Yeah, yeah. Well, then, so after that, after this happens... You branch off and start Vaccaro guitars, Yes, I did. I started with my son in 1999. And, uh, you know, the problem was I really didn't have the capital to get the thing off the ground. I mean, I had come out of a bankruptcy. I got wiped out and getting wiped out by the Jacksons and never even collected on a million five judgment I had against them. So I tried to start a new company. And our first three endorsees, we get the edge from U2 endorsed it. Mm Mm-hmm. Lenny Kravitz played it on a national television show. Yeah. And lo and behold, Kid Rock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you open up Kid Rock's album, he's sitting cross-legged with two Vaccaro guitars in his lap. Yeah. So. And you're still making them here in Neptune. We, no, we were oh. making them in Asbury Park. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. You're right. Kramer was the in Neptune. Kramer factory was, the first Kramer factory was on Green Grove Road. Mm-hmm. The new factory was on... Uh, Neptune Boulevard. That was a thirty-six thousand foot factory, mm-hmm. and then uh, Vaccaro was on one thousand and one Second Avenue in Asbury, right here. Yep, yeah. on the second floor of a warehouse, mm-hmm. which is actually right down over here, street. right? Yeah, down the street from where we're sitting right now. Yeah, block one, county corner. So, and did you were you, were you still associated with uh, Phil? Um, yeah, Phil Patillo. Mm-hmm. I went to Phil. And he helped me design the Vaccaro guitar. Yeah, he just designed the neck. My son was a creative force behind the guitar bodies. Right. And the only problem, well, the couple problems, it still had the tuning fork headstock, much like the original Kramer, yeah. which turned some people off. I mean, yeah. they're used to the traditional Fender design, headstock, Gibson, etc. And, mm. you know, these guitar players that fall in love with the guitar, they probably sleep with the damn thing, you know? Yeah. So that was a, a drawback. So, you know, I just always... Uh, you know, had my hand in a lot of things. Yeah. And, I, and so I said, you know, this is about two years ago. I said, damn, I think I got something. I said, if I could keep that, all the pluses of that Vaccaro guitar yeah. and create a new headstock design, mm-hmm. I'd really have something. Well, yeah. I went and I got a patent on a new design, and it allows you, I can put now any design headstock on my neck, mm-hmm. for example. The Fender headstock is, uh, you know, no, you just show no, people know it's a Fender. Yeah. Same thing with a Gibson Les Paul. Mm-hmm. Same thing with a Charvel or Kramer. Mm-hmm. You recognize them. I now have a design where I can snap any headstock onto this extrusion. Yeah. Any design and make your guitar sound better. So if you like your Fender design headstock, mm-hmm. I can give you a Vaccaro neck with the Fender headstock design and pay Fender a licensing fee and make your guitar play better. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, um, you know, there's a lot of do-it-yourself guitar stuff out there. You know, you can buy these kits from Warmoth and things like that. So this is certainly something people would buy, would, would jump on if you're into hacking your guitar. So you could swap a Vaccaro neck under your stock Fender with a little, yep. Mm -hmm. And make your guitar sound better. Yeah. Sound sustained, something crazy. Yeah. And basses as well. You have a bass headstock here yes. today as well. And we had mentioned in part one of the interview, you had come up with a new design, an updated design to the aluminum neck with the. Um, it's a double T extrusion, yeah. which is lightweight, but it also allows you to put a truss rod in there. Yeah. Now, you might not never need the truss rod, but some people want a fine adjustment. Yeah. I can give you everything that you ever needed in a neck. 
That, I mean, that, that's great. And so this is so Vaccaro guitars are sort of reviving on this idea. Yes. And, and, and are we you, hope to do a Kickstarter program uh-huh. to raise the money because I don't have the capital to do it. I'm not yeah. embarrassed to say that. Yeah. You see the, the um, and to build whole guitars or just this modular no. part. No. Mm. We got if you, if you take a look at that uh, thing, I, yeah. I oh yeah yeah. Um, I think she has it. I sent. Uh, yeah, yeah. She said, Amy sent it to me this morning. On Amy and a thing, you know. Yeah, you can hear not. All, you got to listen to the entire thing because the sustain will blow your mind. Yeah, and basically, it's a structural I beam mm-hmm. that runs down the center with an aluminum headstock, mm-hmm. and the I beam is also aluminum in the shape of a double T. Yeah, I have a uh, a link to. Um, um, the Vicaro guitar prototype, yep. and we'll put that make that available in the notes when we put this on on up, up online, so people can click on it yeah. and see it. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, I saw a little bit of right before we started, and um, well, that's pretty. I mean, fascinating stuff. I mean, guitars are um, and are coming back. What guitars? Yeah, there was a lull at a time, but well, it's interesting. I'm a guitar player, and. Um, you know, guitar fashions change. What people want change all the time. And I, you know, I notice I'm a, as I've mentioned before, at least on the show here, I've, I'm a bad jazz guitar player. I'm like dedicated but terrible, right? And uh, the Gibson has sort of stopped making, you know, stopped making archtop jazz guitars. I don't mm. think they make the 175s anymore. And so the guitars that every jazz player wanted, you can't get because it had fallen out of favor. Yeah. You know, and but there's so many, there's an explosion of op- options like Eastman, the lore, you know, um, the Chinese, Japanese, and Korean guitar makers are doing a very good job of, you know, increasing the options available to you. As a, you know. Well, one thing I forgot to mention yeah. too is there's never been a metal neck on an acoustic guitar because the acoustic body is so light, it will be neck heavy. Yeah. I got a titanium neck. I'll blow your mind. <laughs> put, put it on. Well, I've got a. I've got an. I've got an acoustic with a ruined neck. Maybe I'll. I'll take a prototype. You know. Um, well, that's really interesting. And your and your son's involved in this venture too. He, and, yeah, yeah, he's a creative guy. I'm not. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. He plays the guitar. I don't. Yeah. Well, we had talked about that briefly. I guess I'm not sure if in this if we had caught that in the previous episode. That, yeah, a lot of guitar makers and players are different people sometimes. You know. Um, and I had David Patillo, that's Phil Phil's, Patillo's son, yeah, help me design this new neck, and, Pati- and, and build it. And um, you can still find the Patillos. The Patillo guitar website is still there. You know, Phil has passed away, right? And the um, so you can still see the designs and work with David. You, yeah. know, you can contact him through the you know just look up the Patillo Guitar Company in Asbury, and you'll see get his website and contact him. Absolutely. And um, I'm trying to think. I think that's it in terms of the guitar. Anything you want to say more about the guitars? Like, no. You know, we'll keep an eye out for the Kickstart, and when we when we'll we'll publicize it. Maybe I'll, I'll I'll you know I like throwing in money on the Kickstart. That's an interesting thing. Um, but anyway, I wanted to thank Henry Vaccaro for uh, sticking around and talking about Vaccaro guitars. I'll put this in as an addendum to the, the first episode, and I want to thank you for your time for joining us today. Pleasure. And again, I'm sorry for being late. I'm no, gonna problem. I'm gonna. I'm not going <laughs> up today. What the hell is Sunday? Yeah. So watch a little football. Yeah, you would go yell at your TV for a while. <laughs> All right, thanks so much. You're welcome.